Turn with me, if you would, to the 41st chapter of the book of Genesis. You know, we're not going through this exactly sequentially. Uh, sometimes I'll skip half a chapter or a chapter. So that's what we've done in this case, because we're as we go through this, we're focusing on uh, the special lessons that we might uh, that might encourage us as families today of the Lord Jesus Christ. So for uh, chapter 41, we're going to start reading at verse 37, uh, chapter 41, 37, beginning to read then from God's own word. So the advice was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find such a one as this man, as this a man in whom the spirit in whom in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Inasmuch as God has shown you all this, there is no one as discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house. And all my people shall be ruled according to your word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring off his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. And he clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. And he had him ride in the second chariot, which he had. And they cried out before him, Bow the knee. So he set him over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh also said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh. And without your consent, no man can lift his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name uh, Zebnath uh, Paneah. And he gave him uh, as a wife a Senath the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of An. So Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout all the land of Egypt. Now, in the seven plentiful years, of the ground brought forth abundantly, so he gathered up all the food of the seven years which were in the land of Egypt and laid up the food in the cities. He laid up in every city the food of the fields which surrounded them. Joseph gathered very much grain as the sand of the sea until he stopped counting, for it was immeasurable. And, and to Joseph were born two sons before the years of famine came, uh, <clears throat> whom uh, Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of An, bore to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for God made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. And the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. And then the seven years of plenty, which were in the land of Egypt, ended, and the seven years of famine began to come. As Joseph had said, the famine was in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Then Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. Whatever he says to do, do. The famine was over all the face of the earth, and Joseph opened up all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. 
and the famine became severe in the land of Egypt. So all countries came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain because the famine was severe in all the lands. <clears throat> the title of the sermon this morning is Causes and a Divine, Divine, Divine Blessing. And I asked the question to begin with, is God limited to the natural causes we see around us? Or can he surprise us with completely unseen causes to bless us? In Joseph's jail story, we saw God causing unbelievable change through completely unseen causes. These worked out to bless Israel's families and uh, even Joseph's family as it's, as it's talked about him obtaining a wife. And, um, and these two boys, uh, Manasseh and Ephraim. Now, to start talking about this, we need to ask ourselves, uh, what are causes? Causes, it's kind of an abstract word in itself. And so, um, but I mean, everybody knows what, what we're talking about when we talk about causes, because if you, want to, if you want to reach a certain goal or you want to have something happen, like let's say we want some coffee in the morning, you watch your father and mother make coffee in the morning. Uh, they cannot make coffee without uh, using some outside causation upon the pot. I mean, we just can't look at a pot of coffee and say, heat up, oh, you know, and give some sort of a magic wand or wave it over. No, we need, in order to get hot coffee, you need something that's hot, like a, a stovetop or at least a, a camping fire or something like that. You need a cause that then brings about a certain effect, that is the, um, the, the weather. And uh, if you want to get strong muscles, you've got to employ a, a set of weights. Or if you, want to, if you want to become fleet of foot, build up your lung power and that sort of thing, you've got you've to gotta put on some sneakers. You've got to use some tools. And so each of these tools becomes a cause to help you to reach the goal that you're going to obtain. Now, when we look at Joseph and we look at all of a sudden here, he's become the prime minister of Egypt. And it's happened even faster than he could imagine. He goes to see Pharaoh and Pharaoh basically does the whole thing. It's like somebody who wants to become a minister and instead of going to seminary and... Um, taking time to learn, um, he just uh, a hand is waved, and uh, all of a sudden he's ordained. It's an amazing kind of a of a, a feat that Joseph goes through. Now, the, the what I want you to con consider is I want you to consider J J Joseph's life in jail, and then his life here before Pharaoh. These two tremendously contrasting almost um, contradictory situations. And uh, when he was in jail in Egypt, uh, remember he'd been sent there because of Potiphar's wife lying about him? When he was in jail, um, he had, it was like the absence of all causation in terms of, of being able to do anything. He was separated from, uh, from so much. Uh, can you imagine... Uh, a, uh, uh, a less uh, in terms of good causes in your life when you're in prison or an abundance of more bad causes 
uh, Joseph was unbelievably infringed upon, limited, um, robbed, you might say, of of every power or every ability. He was in prison. He he couldn't even move that much. When you're in prison, you have a limited movement. You don't have any influence. You don't have any money. I mean, uh, uh, Joseph was in the antithesis or the opposite of any kind of a position to bring about good changes in his life. He could not simply work his way out of this. He couldn't give himself over to this because he didn't have the freedom to go out and make sales or to do work or anything else. He was in prison. Now, I want to make a comparison to us today with this because I think as Christians, we so often, we say, oh, I believe in God. But then when we consider our lives and what, can, what are possibilities in our lives, we think, well, if we don't see causes that are equal to what we want to obtain, then there's probably no hope of obtaining those things, don't we? I mean, that's the, we tend to be kind of pessimistic about our life, pessimistic about our situations. Unless we can, unless, unless we can see um, piles of money over there on the table in the, in the breakfast room, we doubt that we'll ever have any. We, we doubt that we'll ever have the freedom of that kind of a budget. And so um, we tend to limit ourselves by what we see in our lives at any one present moment. And if there's anything that the story of Joseph teaches us as believers, is that our God is extraordinary and he can do whatsoever he wills here upon this earth. If he can do that amongst the host of heaven, which the Bible says, then what are the people of the earth? What are our situations on the earth? And if you want to be pessimistic and just see no possibilities for yourself or for your family, for your children, then you can't read the story of Joseph because Joseph went from nowhere to everywhere. He went from being a slave in Egypt, a prisoner slave in Egypt, to being its prime minister, second only to Pharaoh himself, in a in the twinkling of an eye, in the snap of a finger. And when you read the story, when you think about it, it is simply totally extraordinary. But it simply reflects back on the power of God. God is powerful. God brought the earth into being all by himself, not with toil, but in a moment of his decree. And God is capable and able to do anything. So when we look at the church today, we cannot be depressed about the fact that our numbers are few. We cannot be depressed that the enemies of God seem to be so many and so powerful and so animated against us and so angry. We cannot take that into consideration because we know that all of these situations have have obtained through the power of God. God's doing exactly what he wants. It's like there's a combination lock and then every time it it stops and there's something that falls inside the lock, there's one more step into opening it. Uh, That's because God has decreed that that, that that chamber would be filled. And so we cannot be pessimistic. We, we, can, we, can want, we can want better circumstances for our lives, but we can't be angry with God for it, and we, we can't be unhopeful or pessimistic that God will never bring about uh, positive changes for us 
in terms of the Church of Christ. And I see the I see the hope because of the circumstances of our lives, the modern world, because of the secularism of our day, because of the the great stupidity that we see in our nation. I mean, um, <clears throat> it's very discouraging to see uh, uh, balloons flying over your country from an enemy nation and nothing being done about it. And uh, a president who says, well, I, I, I wanted to be sure that when it fell to earth that nobody would be hurt. And th- these, this thing has come across Alaska, ca- Canada, some of the most empty places in the world, earth. So it, it's just, it's very discouraging to see people thinking this way. And uh, when, when you think in your own mind, you think, well, there are so many other possibilities that are better that could have been done easily. But, the, but our leaders, the, some of the smartest men in America aren't thinking that way. And you, and you want to tear your hair out uh, to, to find uh, any reason to rejoice. But the, but the story of Joseph tells us or teaches us that we are not dependent upon the limitations of our present lives. We are only limited by the power of God, and God is all-powerful. He can do whatsoever he wills. And uh, and so that's what we see here. Now, in, in Joseph's life, first of all, we see all these negative circumstances that lead him to prison. His brother sell him into slavery. He ends up in Egypt. He has a turn of apparently good fortune when he works for Potiphar. And Potiphar, God smiles upon him, and he gets elevated, and he gets, he gets raises and all kinds of benefits from Potiphar until Potiphar's wife begins to think wrongly about him. And then he has to fall back and entrench uh, in the righteousness of, of Jehovah. And uh, the day comes when it's either uh, stay true to Jehovah or be completely lost by your infidelity with Potiphar's wife. And so he runs out the door and then she, he, he runs, he says, departure so abrupt she had a hold of his garment and so he just, he, he didn't even say, let go. He just took off. And she used that garment then to frame him and get him sent, sent into prison. So he goes into prison. And when he's in prison, uh, he begins to, it's just, the Lord is with him and he begins to be uh, blessed here and there. And uh, uh, he finally ends up talking to these, these, this baker and this butler. And they have two dreams. And, and Joseph interprets the dreams for them. The one dream is unto a happy situation. The, the, the butler uh, saw a vine with great, luscious grapes on it. And he says, while he's dreaming this dream, um, he sees Pharaoh's cup. And so he takes the grapes and he squeezes the grapes into Pharaoh's cup and fills Pharaoh's cup. And, and then he says to Je- Joseph, well, what, what did this dream mean? And then the, the baker, he, he saw this vine growing. I mean, not the vine, but the, uh, <clears throat> the other situation where um, the birds come and they, they, eat, the, uh, they eat the food, the, the, the grain that is in the, the bowl on his head. And uh, so they go to Joseph and they say, what do these dreams mean? And Joseph interprets them. He says to the, the butler, he says, this, this is a sign that in three days, that uh, that uh, Pharaoh will restore your job. He he was a, a cook or a butler for the for the Pharaoh, uh, a very important post. He says in three days, even though he was sent to jail for something, in three days you will have your life given back to you. 
And uh, it says in the Bible, then the, the baker thought, well, this, this man is just full of positive prophecies, positive interpretations of dreams. So he said, what is my dream? And he tells him, tells Joseph his dream. And Joseph says, in three days, you're, you, you will be, your head will be cut off. You will die because of your uh, you know, wickedness. And, um, and both of these things come to pass. The, um, the butler then goes back to work with Pharaoh, and Joseph had labored with him. He said, now the only thanks that I, that I, that I need is for you to remember what happened here. And if you have an opportunity, speak to Pharaoh about me. But it's so often in the world, people just don't really care about each other. They'll, they'll say, oh, yeah, you know, I'll do this, I'll do that. But then a moment later, they forget. And so the butler went off to Pharaoh's uh, court, and he forgot all about it until the day that Pharaoh had a dream that he could not understand. And none of the other magicians, the, the magi of Pharaoh's court, uh, could give him insight. And it seems like they, they probably tried, but nothing really the, the, the Lord was operative on Pharaoh's mind. And so they would give him an interpretation. And in Pharaoh's mind, he would say to himself, that just doesn't make sense. I, that's, that doesn't make me feel good at all. That doesn't, it, I have no sense of satisfaction with that interpretation. So he kept asking for more interpretations. And finally, the butler comes and he tells him about Joseph. So out of the prison... <laughs> Not knowing anything of all this is going on in the court, not knowing what's happened to the butler and the um, and the and the, the baker, uh, Joseph is summoned into the court of Pharaoh. Pharaoh tells him his dream, and Joseph, with great confidence, tells him that gives him the interpretation of the dream. That is that that uh, and he makes it very plain that it's the God, the God of his God is is in charge of this thing, and that. Uh, God is going to bring seven years of plenty, but that's going to be followed with seven years of, of famine. Pharaoh had dreamed that there would be, there, he saw seven fat cows, and they came up and they, they came into his presence. They were really, uh, they were really chubby cattle, you know, a lot of meat on them, a lot of fine fat, uh, rich meat, you know, and, and but then uh, Pharaoh's seeing this picture of loveliness, and then, uh, then out of the uh, the netherworld, there comes through, comes uh, seven uh, lean cattle, and they look they look totally nasty. They're 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 starving. Their bones are showing. They're they're uh, probably making uh, uh, grouchy sounds, and uh, they they don't look happy at all. And these these cows, I mean, have you ever heard of a cow eating another cow? No, these cows were like, these lean, mean, nasty cows were like a lion. And they ate the fat cows. And the Pharaoh, was, the Pharaoh was dreaming this, and he had to dream repetitively, the Bible says. The Pharaoh was bothered by this. God assaulted his dreams, and Pharaoh could not get an answer for it. So finally, David or Joseph comes into his presence, and... He interprets the dream for Pharaoh. And as he tells Pharaoh about what's happening, uh, God blesses the, the, uh, the mind of Pharaoh. All of his synapse, brain synapses, you know, are clicking in the right way. There's a rhythm there and a symmetry there. And the more that uh, Joseph says, the more that Pharaoh is satisfied with that. He's happy with it. It makes sense to him. Finally, in his mind, 
you know how sometimes we can be we can ask a question or we can have a problem and and when we hear an answer we say yes now i understand this is the answer to my question and so that's what happened to pharaoh but we need to remember that god was in charge of all this i mean every thought every twist and turn of pharaoh's thinking it was all under the dominion of the living god that's why we don't need to worry about things because god is in control and so when joseph uh, joseph and, and this is by the inspiration of god because joseph was a prophet uh, joseph tells pharaoh at the end he said and what you need he not only tells him the dream but then he explains he gives pharaoh uh, a procedure a standard operating procedure for how to deal with the dream and he says you need to store up 10 per, or 20 percent uh, is it 10 or 20 now I'm forgetting uh, a percent of your crop each year during the years of plenty and uh, put it in storehouses and then you'll be ready for these seven lean years and it wasn't just seven years in the years of plenty it wasn't just seven average years and so that they got the 10 or the 20 percent and uh, and that was all it was no these were years of abundance so the the percentages were much greater and it might have been close to 50% of a normal year's field, a yield from the field. And so they gathered these up, and um, it says that the storehouses of the Egyptian cities were, were bulging because of these things. And then those seven first years ended, and uh, as it was, the, the seven lean years came upon them, just like those angry cows, and, but they were ready. And Pharaoh, he says, after Joseph explains this dream and explains the remediation that would be profitable for Pharaoh, Pharaoh says, is there anyone in my presence who has the understanding of this man? So here Joseph came from the jail that day. Uh, again, what hope would Joseph have if, he, if God had not communicated to him this optimistic picture? What, in terms of rationality, what possible responsible interpretation could the, could Joseph have? He goes from the jail to the king's court. Uh, rationally, he, might have, he should have thought going to the king's court. I don't know why, but at the end of the day, I'm coming back to the way. My, my life will resume in the prison. But that's not what happened. That day, Pharaoh says, is there anyone like this man? And he took special robes, and right in front of the court that day, instantaneously, he redresses Joseph as the prime minister of the land. And they went; they started to drive about the land. Uh, he, the, only the king's chariot or Pharaoh's chariot was in front of Joseph's, and he he gave these absolute commands that everybody had to obey Joseph. And he gave, and, and we we see further on that he gave Joseph. Um, blessing because the things that Joseph said everybody agreed to they, they everybody saw the wisdom of these things it wasn't like there was a bunch of envy and jealousy amongst Pharaoh's men because this man from the prison had been elevated over them they saw the wisdom of it they agreed with Pharaoh and so here's Joseph he comes from nothing to everything virtually second only to the most powerful political magnet in the world at that time and all of this happened not because 
of the causation that was there, not because of the causes, not because there was a stove and the stove was already hot and so it was easy to heat the hot water, not because um, you wanted to get better over some illness and you had some medicine that was already there in your presence, within your reach. All of this happened instantaneously, virtually instantaneously, because uh, of the kindness and the mercy of the living God. And so it ought to it ought to shake us up. It ought to spur our prayer lives on. What are the challenges of your life? What are you looking for? What are you hoping for? Uh, has God given you a difficult walk? Has God given you a burden? Uh, well, God doesn't necessarily want you to be out from underneath that burden. Um, Susan and I were talking on the way to church today. She she has been watching some. Um, some stuff on Netflix. It, it features uh, one of them is a, a Islamic family, I think in the Near East, and the other is um, uh, another ethnic ethnicity. But they're they're in America here in some major city like New York City, and uh, and she said that the the whole tale, this repetitive show or program, is about how these people even they're very wealthy, but they just cannot get along. And they, none of them seem to feel like they have real friends. So they have, they have plenty, but they, they, they have scarcity at the same time. Uh, so many of us uh, have scarcity, but we have plenty in terms of uh, wives that love us and husbands that love us and children that love us and uh, happy homes, uh, places where we uh, you know, can find much satisfaction. And uh, we may have... We may have uh, uh, many uh, wants or deprivations, uh, but there's a, there's a great joy in accomplishing those and, in a sense, uh, working our way out of the pit. And one of the things that Susan has noticed in these, in these shows on Netflix is that they have everything already, and there's, 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 there's nothing in their lives uh, as a set as a real challenge, and so the people are all bored. They're not happy, and uh, and uh, she and we were talking about it coming into church. And she said, "How unlike all the people we know, because we uh, there's no way we're bored. We have, we have issues and challenges and problems, um, and so um, Joseph is brought from this place of absolute want, absolute powerlessness, to a place of amazing power." And you'd think that it was a TV script or a, a, a movie script out of California if it were not reality. This is what God actually did. I believe that all of us ought to be encouraged in our lives that we serve a God like this. If we're poor, if we're weak, uh, if we are not as pretty as we think we ought to be or as handsome, that's because God wants us this way and because God is a promise to bless us, but in the circumstances that we're in. And if he wants to change those circumstances, he can. Now, if you're listening to a, a, a wealth pastor or a pastor who's preaching that, uh, that wealth, uh, great wealth is immediately in your hand, um, then he'll, he'll, the whole point of the sermon will get wealthy. And Pastor Canaro's sermon is not, not get wealthy, but just be open to the possibilities. Pray about your life. Pray about the Church of Christ. Pray 
that the church of Christ might flourish despite the evil of our days. You do not know what will happen. At the time, one of the things I observed about studying the Reformation, I've mentioned this before, is that many people looked at the Reformation, they said, oh, great things happened back then. Great things happened to Luther and Calvin. Uh, but that was them. And here we are today, languishing in unbelief. And one of the things I've stressed is that at the, at the, at the time of the Reformation, there were, it was a time like with Joseph. There were no real, clear, obvious, antecedent causes, the causes that come before the effects. Uh, there weren't people running around calling out for Bible study, and then Mr. Luther accommodated their cries. No, uh, Luther simply began by posting a thesis on the door, and uh, uh, Calvin became a, a believer and migrated from France to Geneva. These people did not have it easy. There were no, there were no real antecedent causes that would have suggested that a worldwide reformation was in the offing. Well, then I, I, I asked my brothers in the Reformed Church today, why are you so downcast today? Just because we have a lack of antecedent causes is no reason to be discouraged because our God can do his work, his amazing work, whatever he so wills. So let us be chipper. Uh, let, us, let us rejoice uh, with the God whom we worship and who we have behind us. He is the wind uh, within our sails. And we ought to uh, we ought to be glad. Now, as I sought to apply this, uh, the, you could look at your notes in the bulletin, and uh, <clears throat> because I saw other situations exactly like this, and in a sense, Joseph's life is a prophecy of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But think of the surprise of Jesus' birth. The ancient world, the, the, the kingdoms of Greece and Rome, the empires of Greece and Rome, they were winding down. Uh, Rome, uh, Rome still had power, but it had lost its zest for power. It had lost its dynamism. Uh, of course, it succeeded the empire of Greece, so Greece's was long gone. But if you study the literature of Rome at this time, if you study the art, it was all growing weary and tired. Uh, there was no humanistic joy in these worlds. And then um, you had Israel, who had these high hopes, these messages of a Messiah that was to come sometime in the future. But Israel was prostrate, prostrate before the Roman Empire. It's like a person who had been beat up and was almost half dead upon the ground. And you look at this whole situation between paganism and Israel, and you say, what was the possible hope that could come out of this situation? But there was a surprise birth of a baby in Bethlehem. And uh, a family that had been prophesied to by the angels. And Jesus was born. Jesus' birth, though, came as a complete surprise, so much so that even the heads of Israel did not believe it. They refused to recognize him as the Messiah. They'd been waiting for centuries for the Messiah, and now he'd come. And they were so pessimistic, so, uh, so uh, ugly pessimistic, that they did not believe that he was there even when he was there. But uh, we see uh, the third point. We see that uh, 
his kingdom was not uh, just didn't, it didn't demand or, or um, rest on people's interpretations because the people had a consent that Jesus would be crucified. The surprise was that he was raised, raised from the dead. And then once he rose from the dead, um, he had spoken of a kingdom. And once he rose from the dead, almost as soon as he rose from the dead, we had Pentecost. And we had the, the beginnings of his kingdom. The spirit of God blew upon the nations. And, uh, and there were Jews, and uh, Jews there from different, that had migrated after the Babylonian captivity. They, were, they, they spoke other languages better than they spoke Hebrew, if they spoke Hebrew at all. And uh, at Pentecost, the spirit of God fell upon them. And they prophesied about the wonders of Christ and his kingdom in an amazing way, in a miraculous way, because they didn't know uh, a lot of these languages uh, before, and if they were if they were Jews who were doing the prophesying, and so um, uh, the the uh, just like in Joseph's life, the amazing, the unheard of, the unthinkable was happening there, and Christ's kingdom was beginning to grow. Now, this could have taken place just in the land of Israel, but almost immediately, point four, it began to be extended. This religious idea of Jesus and his kingdom began to spread over Israel's borders immediately into the greater Roman world. And in God's good providence, there were um, Hebrew synagogues all over the ancient world at this time because of the Babylonian captivity, because Israel had been dispersed. They had disobeyed God and God had basically smashed them and they dissipated. But the, the, one of the benefits of this were there were synagogues all over the world. Now, people in these synagogues, they must have wondered, why do we have a synagogue here? Why are the synagogues of Israel of such low repute and, and uh, doing so poorly? But here we are. There was even a synagogue in Rome. When Paul writes his letter to Rome, he writes it to the, to the uh, Christians who are in Rome, but he, they had already gone to Rome and they'd started a new church there, a Christian church on the, on the foundation of the synagogue that was in Rome. And so all of these people that were confused about why they were all over the ancient world without any real direction, all of a sudden they saw that God had established them in their synagogues so that he could establish his new churches all over the world. He had, he had started, he had a foundation for the faith in Syria and Turkey as their modern countries today and Egypt and all over the ancient world. And so this kingdom of this man that had been crucified and resurrected, all it just exploded all over the ancient world. Uh, not only that, but it came to dominate um, Europe. As I said, the ancient world, uh, the empires of Greece and Rome were tired. They had run out of energy. And when you study the culture, the world culture in this way, what you find is that as soon as Christ rose again from the dead, uh, and as soon as Christians began to preach, these cultures, these people that were trying to live and they were trying to live excited lives, but they had no excitement, all of a sudden they had a reason to live that was superior to everything that they had believed in or thought of before. And so all of a sudden the ancient world was enthused about living, enthused about having families, enthused about having businesses and uh, business enterprises. This was the beginning of Christendom. 
as it spread throughout the Middle East and then into Europe. And um, it's just uh, astounding that what God did in the first thousand years after the coming of Christ. Now, there were problems, there were deterioration, but it was it was uh, pretty great. And even when there was a secular uh, secular reformation after fashion, we call it the Renaissance, it was done on the backs of the earlier Christian civilization. They were secular, much like we have today. But it was a secular uh, uh, re-examination of science and literature and the arts, and all of these things, it happened about the 1300s, and um, uh, it was, again, it was a very exciting time, albeit the excitement was not directly related to Christ. And so we have the foundations there for the modern world, which has become so secular, uh, but, uh, but uh, not so saintly. Now, God upset the secular timetable quite a bit, by this thing I referred to earlier as the Reformation. Uh, some of the radicalism, and there was radicalism in the Renaissance. Political radicalism, sexual radicalism. But God upset the apple cart by almost simultaneously, within 100 years of the Renaissance starting. In fact, he used some of the benefits of the Renaissance. The Renaissance people got working on languages and uh, trying to understand the ancient Greek. And so when the Reformation started, uh, the, the foundation had already been laid for deeper Bible study to be done in the Greek and the Hebrew text. And so God brought that about. And there was this tremendous explosion of, of uh, godliness through the Reformation, with which we're, st we're still living off the largesse of that today in a church like ours. Um, it was somewhat of a surprise, I think, in the 1800s, in the 1900s, that we began to lose more and more, that the secularism began to rise more and more, and godliness, Puritanism began to decline. But that's where we are. But uh, I think that we ought to be challenged when we look at history like this, and we look at how God has brought things about without any really real antecedent causes. We ought to be excited because God's promises are that the knowledge of God Someday in the scriptures it says that the knowledge of God would be so plentiful that it would be like the, the seas that cover the earth, uh, the, the, the plentiful waters. The knowledge of God would be like that. He says that the, the day would come when um, unbelievers would be knocking on the doors of the believers, asking them for, uh, to explain what the hope that is within them. Within them. Uh, he says in the scriptures in very plain sense, he says that in time, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. He teaches us in scripture, didactic passages of scripture, uh, that he prays, he has us pray that the kingdom would come, not just in heaven, he says the, pray that the kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven in the Lord's prayer. Well, why would he have us pray these things if, he, if they were vanities? If, they, if he was never going to act upon them with his blessing. Obviously, they're not vanities. Obviously, he is going to bless them. And so why can we not be the ones who pray about these things and find the, 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 the future come about in a surprising way like it did with Joseph? Brothers and sisters, you, we're, re we're rearing children for the next age. <laughs> And they shall see things, I think, that we uh, can hardly believe. I just saw an article this past week uh, 
that said that with the advances they're making in medicine, that that 90 is going to be the new 50. Now, at one time they said that uh, they said that uh, uh, 60 was going to be the new 50, and uh, we're living in those days now. I can remember my grandparents when they were in their 50s, they were walking around crumpled over with arthritis and uh, gnarly joints in their fingers and that sort of thing. It's amazing how much better and in better shape, despite all of our problems, we are today than they were then. But uh, they're saying now that with uh, uh, all that they're learning about the brain, that uh, even in our lifetimes, um, we're going to find ways to extend our lives um, through um, through basically science and, and medicine. So we as Christians, we need to be, we need to be ready for this. I remember reading about futuristic articles when I was back in college, and they were talking about how uh, nutrition would be such and food would be such that people wouldn't necessarily uh, take a lot of t- take as much time with meals as they did then. And I thought to myself, how horrible that is, because I, I enjoyed family meals and that sort of thing. But I have to admit today that you know that. Uh, I don't need as much food anymore. I, I don't need very much. Uh, I don't need to sit down to a three, uh, a three, uh, a tiered meal. And if I did, I'd, I'd I'd be so heavy that I probably couldn't even waddle in here and preach for you. Uh, so you know, of necessity, my life has changed, and I've seen these these things happen that I didn't think were possible. I, I heard, I saw articles about the, these computers and the internet. I, even Christians like Gary North were telling people to make investments 40 years ago, to make investments depending on these things to develop. I thought, well, he's got a good mind and he may have a point, but I just didn't see it at all. Here we are. You know, we've got our, we've got phones in our hands that are, are more powerful than the most powerful computer when I was a child. And uh, yet here we are. So we need to be ready for God's surprises. He's going to give us surprises both through his uh, through the, his spirit moving upon the culture, uh, our six-day lives, and he's definitely going to give us uh, surprises through our seventh-day life and the movement of the spirit upon our hearts and upon our churches. And we cannot, uh, we cannot obtain great blessings unless we give ourselves over to these things in terms of expectation and prayer and hope. Uh, just like Joseph. Let's close in prayer. Our Father and our God, we pray that we would uh, begin to develop this attitude. We don't need to wait until the prosperity has come, O Lord, in order to pray for it. We don't need to wait for strength to pray in our weakness that strength would come. And so we look at the promises of the scriptures. We look at the Psalms where it says that, that every banner and every shield of the world would belong to God. We, we see a psalm like uh, 47 that says that all the peoples of the world will confess to love God and that the whole world will unite. All the different ethnicities, all the different peoples will unite. There will no, there will no longer be reluctant uh, Islamic people or angry Marxist people who refuse but these people will have seen the foolishness of their ways. The idiocy that we see today among some of our politicians, uh, people will see this themselves, and so they will not be inclined to the mistake and to the idiocy 
uh, to which people are inclined today. They will know uh, who is a man and who is a woman. They will, they will understand the, the beauty of the family and the beauty of the heart, a flame for Jehovah God. So we pray for this day, Lord. You've opened up the scriptures. We see the vision. Where there is no vision, the Bible says, the people perish. But we have the vision, O Lord. So we pray that you might use us to bring about these great things. And that if we don't see it in our lives, that our children or our children's children might see them. We pray this in Jesus' name. The one who rose again from the dead and sitteth now at the right hand of God the Father, uh, doing whatever, whatsoever he wills from that position of plenty and privilege. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.